Good morning. It's good to be back with you again. And um, as we continue our series, um, Unstoppable, I was thinking this morning as we come to Acts 16, 11 to 40, and as I was preparing, how do we think about the word witness? If you are a fan of police procedural dramas, the word witness means the person who saw a crime and has to get up in court and tell what they saw. And that's where we get the word. But if you're like me, and you grew up in the church, you hear the word witness, and you're ten- you have a temptation to break into a cold sweat. I have visions of being a little kid and Tuesday nights were soul winning nights where people went knocking on doors to tell people about Jesus. And that was the 70s. So perhaps you hear the word witness and you get scared and you think, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't have the gift of evangelism. How do I tell someone And it gets even trickier in the day that we live in because it's increasingly clear that our world is not just not Christian or secular, but in many places, in many arenas, it's hostile to Christianity. And we don't want to lose friends or family members. And what will people think of us? And there are all of these questions and anxieties that we have. And as we're going to see today, all of these things are things faced by Paul. What does it mean to be a witness for God? And we're going to see a little bit about what we need to be doing based on what Paul did as he went to the the city of Philippi in Greece. So if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 16, verses 11 to 40. It's a fairly long passage, but we're going to look at the entire time that Paul was at Philippi. And this is what we read, starting in verse 11. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her house. If you consider me to be a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God and are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. 
When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they, have thro- and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received those orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened them in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all of the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, uh, who called for lights rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before him, before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. And when it was daylight, the magistrates sent officers to the jailer with their order, release those men. And the jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can go. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come and escort us out. The officers reported to the magistrates, And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them out from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the believers and encouraged them. And then they left. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the witness of Paul and Silas and the others who were with them. We thank you that... You are a God who cares about us. And I pray that today we would see a little bit more about how we are to be witnesses for you in a world that does not know you or understand you and often is opposed to you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I have to confess that evangelism, as we call it, is not easy for me. I am, um, in many ways, a raging introvert. Um, And my wife, on the other hand, is a party waiting to happen. (laughs) And we couldn't be more different in many ways. And, And so I get anxious at the thought. I overthink it. I get worried that I'm going to say the wrong thing, that I won't have a good answer, that I might offend someone. And I'm sure that if we went around the room, many of you have felt the same way in the past. And when we look at a passage like today, we can be tempted to think, oh, Paul is this super spiritual guy, 
And I'm not like him, and I couldn't do what he did. But I think what we're going to see is there is a pattern to what Paul does. We see the people that Paul encounters, and we're going to see the perception of the kingdom of God that Paul is concerned about preserving. But even more than that, before I I get started into the outline you have um, with you this morning, I'm going to add a fourth P. Call it point zero. Um, and that is the priority of God in the world. It's interesting, this morning, before the service, Phil prayed, and he, he even said, um, God, if there's something that, that needs to go away or that needs to be added, let Kevin do it. And then I, I'm listening to the, the songs that we sang and the passage in Jeremiah, and one of the things that we need to be reminded of is that in all that we do when it comes to witnessing, to, when it comes to telling the world about Jesus, we need to remember it's not about us. The priority is God. He comes first. He is the thing through which all of this goes. And if we look at what Paul does, and if you look at this entire passage, Paul is concerned first and foremost about God. Because at the end of the day, That's who this is about. That's what our witnessing is about. It's not about us. So I want you to keep that in mind as we move into point one, which is the pattern of Paul's witness. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but I grew up hearing stories about Paul and thinking, okay, we just get told the things that he does over and over again. And we think that he just does whatever comes to him and that we should too. Um, Wherever the Spirit leads is one of those kind of church phrases we hear. And usually what that really means is whatever I feel like doing, um, which is often not much. Um, Or uh, maybe we get felt, we feel convicted. And so we're led, as we say. And it's kind of the whim or the emotion that we get caught up in. But that's not what Paul does. He has a plan, a pattern to his witnessing that we can follow. So Philippi, they come to Philippi. It's an important city, an official Roman colony in Macedonia. So this is the northeast side of Greece at the top of the Aegean Sea. It's an important center of trade and culture right on what is known as the Ignatian Way. It's a road that stretches from the west part of the coast of Greece so right across from the boot in Italy, all the way over to what is today Istanbul in Turkey. And that road still exists in many places, 2,200 years later. And many scholars think that Luke, who writes the book of Acts, is from Philippi. Why is this important? Because I think it feeds into the pattern that Paul shows us. You see, Philippi was thoroughly Romanized. Its law and culture, unlike the surrounding areas, were identical with Rome. It wasn't a province. It wasn't treated that way. It didn't have to pay taxes that the provinces had to pay. And it didn't have some of the restrictions that they they would have had. Philippi was the kind of place you wanted to be, an important place. And in his journeys, what Paul does consistently is he starts by targeting places of cultural significance. There's more people there. Frankly, there's more Jews, and that's important. We're going to see that in a minute. And cities 
exert disproportionate influence on the areas around them. Think about how the, the state of Illinois works. Chicago sneezes and the rest of us catch a cold, right? And they become a base of operations for both Paul and the ministry of God to go elsewhere. Does this mean that the little towns are unimportant, he said while preaching in a small church in a little town? No, that's not the case at all. But Paul starts at the bigger towns and then moves out. Why? Because it makes sense. He's one guy and he's got a little group and he is the start of the church as it spreads throughout the Roman world. That's not the same as us today, right? Because we know about Christianity. And yes, the small towns matter. But we need to recognize that he has intentionality in mind as he starts. And look, most of us aren't going to be called to do what Paul does, but we can take cues from him. Wherever we go, whatever our specific calling is, how do we reach out to the people we are called to? Are we being intentional? Paul was. And that's the first step. Because what does he do? He encourages the spiritually open with the challenge of the good news. We think of Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles. And he was. But he never stopped being a Jew. Never. He never stopped caring about his people. And we see a pattern that Paul takes. When Paul went to Cyprus and Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13 and Iconium in chapter 14. Where does he start? In the synagogues, where the Jews are. Why would he do that? And, and frankly, when we get to Philippi, it seems like he breaks the pattern. We don't see a synagogue. He goes outside the city to the river to a place of prayer. And it seems odd. But here's the rule. In order for Jews to build a synagogue, there have to be ten men in town. And they have to be men. It doesn't matter how many women at that point in time. In order to create a synagogue, you have to have ten men. So apparently, the Jews were a very small minority in Philippi, even though it's an important town. And so, what the Jews would do if they didn't have a synagogue is they would designate a place. And apparently Paul knows what this pattern is because that's where he goes. And Paul and Luke and Silas and Timothy find a group of devout Jewish women on the Sabbath gathering for prayer. And he begins there. He's intentional because he starts with people he knows are already predisposed to listen to something about God. Remember, Paul himself, his conversion is not a conversion from pagan beliefs or atheism to Jesus. He goes from believing in God and devoutly believing in God to believing more completely in God, to understanding who Jesus is. Paul, for all of his problems as Saul, is the kind of person who is predisposed to listen to God. So that's where Paul starts. People who are spiritually open, and he shares the good news of Jesus with them. So who is that today? I would think that it first begins probably with our immediate families. And we're going to see, and we did see as I read this passage in the 
story of Lydia and the story of the jailer, the entire household believes. And that's a good place for us today to start. Beyond that, think about your extended family or friends who may be nominally Christian. They're Christian because they're not anything else, maybe. Right? And they're generally believers in God, but they don't believe enough. Or they don't have the right information. And here's the thing. They may not be the people you think about. According to one recent poll, there's about 80% of Americans that say they believe in God. 80%. Now, there is an open question as to what they mean by that. Do they believe in the same God? But that's a place for us to begin. But notice, too, it's not a one-and-done thing. We don't get to share the gospel and say, okay, I've done my part, and I'm done, and I go back to whatever. Paul's pattern is persistent. In verses 16 and 18, we read, once we were going, when we were going to the place of prayer, and then, in verse 18, she kept this up for many days. Paul and his companions kept going back to the Jewish people. They kept ministering to those who had not yet believed. So, Paul's pattern is to start with the spiritually open, but he's persistent. And it isn't as if everyone that, we, that he talks to becomes a Christian right away. And that leads us to the second step in the pattern. Paul encounters spiritually oppressed people and confronts their spiritual darkness. Think about back in Cyprus. Paul goes to Sergius Paulus. He had started in the synagogues. He catches the attention of the ruler. And who gets in the way? Bar-Jesus, the sorcerer. When we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, I guarantee you the spiritually oppressed people will come out of the woodwork. They're going to show up. They're going to stand in our way. They seem to be drawn out almost like moths to a flame, and we should expect it, and we should not be afraid of it. Instead, we need to confront that darkness head on. Paul does. He is on his way to do ministry, minding his own business, not seeking a confrontation. But he doesn't shy away. It's this really odd encounter. I don't know if you felt this way, but the first time I read that, I'm like, why is Paul getting annoyed that this woman is telling the truth? Come on, Paul. She's practically doing your job for you. Why are you upset? But there's more going on here that is hard for us in the 21st century to understand. She has a spirit by which she predicts the future. The Greek text says she has a python spirit. E-Y-T-H-O-N, yes, like the snake. And that sounds really, really odd, even odder than it normally sounds to us in English. But in the ancient world, this would have evoked serious spiritual powers that everyone would have known. You've probably heard from school about the oracle at Delphi in Greece. The oracle was called Pythia, named after the serpent or dragon Python, who guarded the mountain sanctuary where the oracle lived. And Apollo, yes, that Apollo, the god Apollo, killed Python and took the mantle of prophecy on himself and was called Pythian Apollo after that. 
And so in this story in Philippi, this slave girl is being directly associated with the oracle at Delphi and with Apollo. And rabbinic literature of the time explicitly identifies the python with the demonic. So what do we have going on here? We have a struggle against the cultural forces of the day, the dark spiritual powers and God. And some have argued that when this oracle says they are servants of the Most High God, she doesn't necessarily mean God as we know him, but could have been used for any of the major pagan gods. But she seems like she might have been mocking Paul. In any case, when we hear that Paul is annoyed, it's annoyance in the sense of exasperation. He's let it go on for several days. And why is he concerned? Because even though she's telling the truth, the source of her power is going to discredit his message and maybe introduce pagan thinking about God and who God is into what people think about the Most High God. It could have associated Paul in his ministry with making money from spiritual power, because after all, that's what her owners are doing. In any case, Paul confronts and does so in the name of Jesus, a power beyond the very real and frightening power of demons. And when today we encounter spiritual darkness, false teaching, we have to act. We have to tell the truth. That's part of our witness. And Paul didn't go looking for trouble. Some people like to go out and find trouble and pick a fight. Paul's not doing that. But he's not unprepared. And he doesn't shy away. He didn't act on his own power, but in the name of Jesus. And so must we. You see... That's going to be a risky thing to do because Caesar Augustus, he was instrumental in making Philippi a Roman colony and he made Apollo his special god. So Paul goes to a place where the most powerful, the venerated Augustus has created a town and has venerated Apollo and Paul has just shown shown that his god is stronger than the God who is the prime God in Philippi. Next in the pattern, we see that Paul has to endure unjust treatment for the Lord and show compassion. You see, if we confront spiritually oppressed people and spiritual oppression in general, there are going to be consequences. For Paul and Silas, there were. There were for the slave girl and her owners... Those owners lie about Paul and Silas. They frankly play the race card. They go out of their way to accuse them because of their Jewishness. You have to understand, in that day, there was a lot of anti-Semitism going on. Sounds vaguely familiar to today. And the emperor Claudius had just recently kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. And the Roman historian Suetonius said that it was, quote, since the Jews constantly made disturbances, disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, end quote. Most scholars today believe that what's going on there is that the Jews in Rome were arguing about 
Christ. Because the Latin spelling of Christ is Christus. Okay? So if Paul is preaching Christ in a particularly Roman colony and causes an uproar, do you understand why people, the, the leaders, the rulers, are scared? And the slave owners used this all to their advantage. Look, I don't know if they really believed in the girls' powers or not, but they were out a lot of cash. And so Paul and Silas are taken before the magistrates, beaten and thrown in prison. And it was an illegal trial because they were Roman citizens. It wasn't a nice prison. They get moved into the inner prison and put in stocks. And perhaps the officials were afraid of the spiritual powers of Paul, but they're not taking any chances. And the jailer knew that he was going to be held responsible. We know the story. Earthquakes and open cell doors and a jailer about to commit suicide because he knows what's coming. So what does Paul do? do. He doesn't take off, and he doesn't let the other prisoners take off either. He doesn't let the jailer get, what, get what's coming to him because he was part of a corrupt system. He doesn't look down on him or despise him. He shows compassion in the face of injustice. And that's the third part of that pattern. You see, Paul goes where people are open and he encourages them. He encounters spiritual impression and confronts it. And he endures injustice with compassion for the very instrument of that injustice. Paul witnesses by modeling Christ to people who need Jesus. So let's talk about those people for a minute. The people we encounter along the way. We see three different types of people today. Three who sort of stand in for all of the kinds of people that we, under the right circumstances, will encounter as we witness. Of course, there's actually far more people in the story, but I want to focus on these three. All right? First, the good. Lydia. Right? Lydia, we like her. She seems familiar, kind of like us in many ways. The good one. She's spiritually open. She's not from Philippi, and she's not Jewish. She's a God-fearer. That means she's a proselyte. She's from Thyatira in western Turkey. Paul's first convert in Europe is a woman who is open to God. She's also materially secure. Seller of purple cloth, the color of royalty, of status and privilege. And her home was of Thyatira was a region famous for purple dyes. And it seems she's a successful business person of some status. She's the only person named in this whole storyline. And she's certainly not the dregs of society. And at the same time, she's a little bit culturally suspect. Because first, she's attached to some way, in some way to the Jewish community, whom we've already said is kind of on the outs here. Second, she's a woman. And in that culture, that's second-class status. There are indicators in the text she's either likely single or, recent, or probably widowed because she is, it talks about her and her household. And normally, that would not be said. It would be said about the man, the husband, and he's nowhere to be found. 
So Lydia is prosperous and important, but not quite socially acceptable in polite Roman society. But she is responsive to God. We know that she's open to God because she's with the Jewish people praying. But Lydia listens to Paul's words and was open to the prompting of the Spirit. The Lord opened her heart to respond, we hear. Paul's pattern starts where it does because he is going to find people who are open to listening. And you're going to be more likely to find somebody who is willing and able to listen there. Verse 15 doesn't just say she believes. It shows her acting on it by being baptized. And along with her whole household in the ancient world, when the head of a household converts, so do the kids, so do the servants, this is what happens. We, it sounds weird to us, especially when everything today is about the individual, right? But in the ancient world, the individual is always centered in their community. And when we think about it, it's really not odd. Because as parents, we say things like we want to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, right? We teach and model and raise our kids to be Christians, Yes, they have to come to a saving faith on their own, but that faith is nurtured in a community. And Lydia responds to God and brings others with her, and then she engages in hospitality. She put her new faith to work and said, my house will be your base of operations. She is the epitome of the person we want to convert, right? She's open, she's willing, she's going to get involved, and she's successful. And that's something that we love. But then we have to look at the next, that other part of it. For all of that, she still needs Jesus. And she has real needs. We need to reach out to the Lydia's in our own lives to see the person who has it together on the surface still needs God. And we have a responsibility to reach out. But of course, Lydia is not alone in the story because we move from the good to the bad, which is the enslaved oracle. We never know her name. She is what we are tempted to call the bad girl. She's into things she ought not to be into. And she is in many ways the antithesis of Lydia. She is spiritually oppressed, enthralled to a demon. She seems to have been able to function pretty much normally, but the demon uses her to predict the future. And that's a pretty sought-after power. If you know the future, you can change things and put your enemies to shame. But it was a power that came at a cost. She wasn't in control. And today, we often have a very hard time believing in spiritual powers, at least openly. But Americans have a very strange mix of religious beliefs. A recent uh, Pew survey showed that a very high percentage of people, even people going to church, believe in very new age things, very spiritual things. And I'm reminded that C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, which is his famous book where the older demon is writing letters to teach the younger demon. 
he says that the best of both worlds, Screwtape tells Wormwood, the best of possible scenario is to have people disbelieve in the existence of demons while simultaneously being completely open to their power and influence. And that's the world we live in. So let's recognize a few things here. First, spiritual oppression is real and perhaps more common than we think. But second, this is not simply an individual issue. Yes, the slave girl was possessed, but she was being used as the instrument of others. It was a system of spiritual oppression. And sometimes with our Western emphasis on the individual, we can overlook the fact that an entire system can be spiritually oppressive. The owners of the slave immediately move to a systematic attack on all Jews when she is freed. And spiritual oppression can be individual or, or systematic, and it's usually both. And as Christians, we need to be very, very careful that we do not become blind to spiritual, systematic spiritual oppression. On her own, even though this girl is spiritually compromised and morally bankrupt, she is accountable. We can't miss that. She can do nothing to change her situation. On her own, she is powerless. Someone needs to free her. And the next time that you come face to face with the bad girl or the bad boy who is spiritually oppressed, remember that. On their own, they cannot change their situation. She needs Jesus. She needs to be freed, and she can't do it on her own. Jesus chooses us to help free the enslaved. But the spiritual can't be separated from the fact that she is also physically and economically enslaved. She's owned by others. They're using her for monetary gain and status. She can't simply do whatever she wants, whenever she wants, even if she has a sort of freedom in other ways. We don't like to think about it, but the truth of the matter is there are lots of people today who are enslaved. Maybe not technically, legally, though that does happen even today, but they're trapped. And Paul starts a chain of freeing this woman, not only spiritually, but physically and economically as well. And sometimes we don't recognize the realities of enslavement because the very same person who is enslaved spiritually or economically, can be powerful in other ways. As I said, she was religiously powerful. The oracle at Delphi was one of the most influential, powerful people in the ancient world, and that's despite the fact that she is a woman in the middle of a male-dominated culture. And I mean dominated in every sense of the word. A Roman male citizen could do whatever he wanted this girl, though a slave, has a spiritual status and power. She can influence things, and she would have been given respect of a kind. And I know it seems crazy to say, okay, how can she be a slave and have power at the same time? But people, as much as we don't like it to be true, and societies aren't entirely logical. There's all kinds of contradictions and odd truths that we need to be ready for. And even the religiously powerful can do unspeakable things. And I don't know what to call that other than demonic. 
This girl is a slave, oppressed, and yet religiously powerful enough to promote falsehood, to lead others astray, and she would have corrupted the good news that Paul is proclaiming. We need to recognize that someone can be both victim and perpetrator at the same time. And rarely is someone totally one or the other. And we need to show compassion and strength of character when we reach out to people like her. And we don't always get to know what happens to them. She has an unknown spiritual response. We don't know what happens to her. Luke doesn't tell us. Some scholars believe she's taken in and cared for by the fledgling church, but we don't know. We don't always know what, a di- what difference our witness will make, and that's not our job. We have to be available to do our part and trust God to do the rest. We also need to recognize that when we witness and free people from the chains that bind them, it will be a catalyst for turmoil. Paul and Silas don't get thrown into prison if Paul doesn't encounter this slave girl. She is the catalyst for turmoil. The entire city is affected, not just Paul and Silas, not just her, not just her owners. There's a crowd involved and the government. And when we bear witness for Christ, there will be consequences. And for Paul and Silas, that led them to the ugly. It's probably unfair to call the jailer ugly. But he's sort of a stand-in for a corrupt system and individuals that bent it against Paul. Unlike the slave girl, he doesn't seem to be in opposition to Paul, so why call him ugly? Because he's spiritually indifferent. In many ways, this is worse than being spiritually opposed, because at least when you're opposed, you care about spiritual things. This guy, at least at the beginning, doesn't seem to. We're going to meet people along the way who simply don't care what God has to say. Not until they're confronted with a situation that's completely out of their control and demands their attention. I had a professor who called these seasons of the soul, events and times in our lives when we are more open to hearing from God. We need to be available so that when these happens in the lives of people we come in contact, we are there to speak Jesus into their lives. Notice that this this man is physically intimidating. He quite literally holds a sword. He's the embodiment of the power of Rome, the power of the oppressive state, and sometimes we're going to have to face very real threats to our well-being. Do we really believe that the other, the person who needs Jesus, is worth that? God did. Jesus was willing to sacrifice all for people who brutalized him. But for all his physical power, this jailer is also politically dependent. He's beholden to the system. Why is he ready to commit suicide? Because he knows what's going to happen to him as a member of that, that power if something happens to the, Paul and Silas. A pawn can be both powerful and powerless at the same time. He was part of a different sort of power than a slave girl but that power was fickle and he knew it. But here's the beauty of reaching out to the spiritually indifferent. When God works, they move from fear to wonder to belief. That's what we see happen like that with this man. He's confronted with his worst nightmare. 
prisoners freed, and not just any prisoners, the ones that he's supposed to be guarding closely. This is disaster. But as the circumstances unfold, he realizes what is happening, and his spiritual indifference falls away. And many scholars think that when he says, what must I do to be saved, he's mostly concerned about his physical safety. What Paul does is says it goes way beyond that. Right? He's no doubt thinking Paul's God, who has come for the slave girl and her owners and had bested Apollo, is now coming to Paul's defense and he's coming for him. But Paul connects the physical to the spiritual and there is a radical transformation in the jailer's life. He has seen that this God is compassionate and he's changed. And so is his household. He's changed from indifference to, uh, to showing compassion. Paul shows compassion to the jailer and the jailer returns it takes Paul and Silas in, he binds their wounds and feeds them. Not because he's a good guy on his own, but because God has changed him. People are complicated. We are messy and unpredictable and multifaceted. And the gospel affects whole people and families and communities. And if it is real, it will affect all of our lives physical, spiritual, economic, political, religious. That's the reason why I spent all that time on these things that don't seem like maybe the spiritual side of things. They affect our families and our jobs, and we need to remember that there is no one who is out of the reach of God. And it doesn't matter if we think they are good or bad or ugly. God cares for them, and he will work in their lives, and he uses us to do so if we are paying attention and available. Finally, my third point, and this is much quicker. I want to talk about the perception of the kingdom. What do I mean by this? Throughout this entire episode in Philippi, Paul cares about what others think about the church, about God's kingdom, and so should we. We see it in several ways. In his interaction with the slave girl and why he is concerned and stops her. We see it in the way that he interacts with the officials at the end of the story. Paul wouldn't let others define the truth or falsehood of his faith, of what he was doing, Because the perception of the kingdom of God by those outside of it matters. We as the church have a responsibility to proclaim God in a way that does not bring shame on him. And today Christianity has a black eye or worse to many of our friends and neighbors in our culture. And a lot of that is self-inflicted. We show ourselves to be angry and afraid instead of compassionate and loving. We show ourselves to be self-interested instead of faithful to the one who tells us to love God and love others. So what do we see in this passage to help others have a proper perception of the kingdom? First, our concern is for God's work, not ourselves. This goes back to point zero, point God first. Look at Paul's pattern for the people he encounters. In no case does he put himself first, not once. He goes where people who might believe are. He confronts the oracle because she is corrupting God's message and he knows that there will be consequences and takes them. And even when he's beaten and in prison, he looks out for the jailer, not himself, because he knows God cares for him. Do we put God's work first? Before our self-interest? We had better. Second, attitude is everything. 
Paul's attitude can be seen in his actions. He allows Lydia to show hospitality to him, to do for God what she can. He is patient with the slave girl until she threatens his ministry. He sings and praises God in the middle of the night in prison and keeps everyone calm after disaster. Paul shows us that the gospel has to affect our attitude. It changes how we look at others and how we view our circumstances. He will later write to the Philippian church to have the same attitude of mind that Christ Jesus had. Third, we need to remember the message is for everyone. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The people we like and the ones we don't. The ones that are like us and the ones that couldn't be further away. No one is so far from God that he will not offer a way back to himself. And Paul shows us that we have to get past our own prejudices and our own preferences, get those out of the way, and trade them for God's. Fourth, we have to stand firm against spiritual oppression and injustice. Look, this slave girl is being oppressed. And there are peop- the people are being oppressed by her and her masters. Paul stands firm both for her and against her at the same time. He is not content to stand by when the magistrates realize that they could be in trouble for what they have done. They broke the law. He stands up for himself and for Silas because it's right. And we need to stand up for what is right as well. But we need to remember, why does Paul do this at the end of this story? At least, in part of his motivation is to make sure the prejudice against Jews, against believers in Christ, doesn't stop the church. God's kingdom is here in the world we live in, and Paul wants to make sure that it is not hampered because of untruth. We have to tell the truth. We have to make sure others do too. But we have to do it the right way, with the right attitude, the right frame of mind. And finally, we have to be grounded in the community of faith. That very last verse, verse 40, where does Paul go when this is done? He goes to the church, to Lydia's house, the community of faith. And it seems that the work has already, in just these few days, affected more than just her household, that the church has moved from the river to her home. Paul encourages the believers. But I think there's something more. Paul's witness has sown the seeds of a fledgling church. And he is showing that all believers, including himself, need the church. They need to be connected to the body. And I like to think that that day, Paul and Silas went to Lydia's home and he brought some new members, a Roman jailer and his family and their servants. And there standing in the background is a young girl who is not quite sure what to do with herself. And Lydia's purple-stained hands are around her shoulder. And there are a few other women from the prayer meeting, and perhaps a few others as well. It's not big, but it's a start. They are becoming one in Christ because of Paul's faithfulness, his witness. The church grows, and God's kingdom expands. And so as we end today, before the last song, I would like to read what Paul says in Philippians 2 to this church in a letter that he writes just a few years later. Philippians 2, 6 to 11 says that we are to be like Christ. And this is what Paul says about 
Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used by his, to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and found in appearance as a human being. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen.